This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. At the instant that a person puts their faith alone in Christ alone, every sin is forgiven. But after we're saved, we still sin. And so there is a necessity not to be saved again, but simply to make sure that we are restored to right relationship with God the Father, wherein the Holy Spirit can work to sanctify us and mature us, a ministry known as the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we must make sure that we are in fellowship. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, which gives us the opportunity to, uh, in the privacy of our own priesthood, admit or acknowledge any known sin to God the Father. We are instantly forgiven. We are restored to fellowship, and we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to worship You on the basis of the truth of Your Word, that we live in a nation that has guaranteed us, through the operation of law, the freedom to assemble together to freely teach Your Word and proclaim its eternal truth. Father, we pray that You might continue to protect this nation, to provide us with these freedoms that as we are currently engaged in this war against terrorism, we pray that you would guide and direct our president and those who serve in uh, both civilian and military leadership responsibilities, that they might guide and direct us and protect us. Father, we pray that you would continue to secure our borders. Ultimately, we do this not for the simple sake of our own security, but that we as a nation may continue to fulfill our uh, destiny as we communicate the gospel, as we send out missionaries, and as we provide a support for the nation Israel. Now, Father, as we gather together as believers, we understand the principle that as goes the nation, or as goes the believer, so goes the nation, and that our responsibility, first and foremost, is to grow to spiritual maturity. And we do that through a study of your word. We pray that this might be a time of concentration, a time where we realize that this is your word and that you have revealed to us everything we need for life and for our spiritual life and that as we submit to the authority of your word, 
under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and His filling ministry in our lives, we advance to spiritual maturity that you might be glorified. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and tonight we're going to get into a study that takes us beyond where you have gone before. We are going to break into some new territory. Now, if you listen to a couple of the lessons ahead on the Internet before I left Connecticut, then you've caught some of this. Uh, in a few of the earlier lessons, I foreshadowed where I was going with this. But tonight we are going to move beyond some of the review where we've been the last two or three uh, classes since I've been here. And we're going to open up what may be a new vista for some of you in understanding what's going on in the angelic conflict in terms of your individual spiritual life as well as the spiritual life of the congregation. Because tonight we're going to focus on the last verse of Revelation chapter 1, as it sets us up for understanding the framework of the next two chapters. Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 contain seven letters to these seven churches that are located on the western coast of what was the Roman province of Asia, which we know today is simply Turkey. It's that western western part of Turkey. And we must understand the nature of these short epistles, these little postcards that are contained at the preface to the rest of Revelation. I mean, if you look at the book of Revelation, we have chapter 4 through chapter 22 that deal with future things. So why is it that when we approach this book, the first thing that happens in chapter 1 is this, this vision that John has of Jesus walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And from that, we immediately go into two chapters where Jesus is addressing those seven churches represented by those seven lampstands. Why does this set up the future future issues in Revelation from chapter 4 on? So we have to stop. We have to understand some background and go through some things that may not have been as clear to some of you in the past, and we'll try to clarify some of these things. Revelation 1.16. Before we jump to the 20th verse, we have to get it to the background. John sees a vision. He hears a voice. He's on the island of Patmos. He hears a loud voice telling him to write what he sees to the seven churches that are in Asia. And he turns around to look at the voice, and he sees one like the Son of Man walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. And then he begins to describe for us what this individual, this Son of Man, uh, uh, looked like. He says he's clothed with a, with a garment down to the feet. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair are white, as, white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his voice like the sound of many waters. He describes his, his legs, his feet like like a a refined metal that is bright and shining. And then in verse 16 he says that, that in his right hand are seven stars. He has literally, and the Greek verb there, echo, simply means to hold on to something. He had in his right hand seven stars. 
Out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword, which we studied last time, that that's a rampia, it's a sword indicating judgment. And then it goes on to say his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, we studied all this background last time, but we want to focus on this one uh, image in verse 16. That is that in his right hand he holds seven stars. Now, this is significant because when we get to the last verse of the chapter, we read the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. I mean, of all the things that that John describes about the future Jesus Christ appearing to him, of all the things he says about his appearance, the one thing that Jesus hones in on is the seven golden lampstand and the seven stars. Now, we have to make some careful observations of the text here. Otherwise, we can misidentify what's going on here. And it's so important. If we don't identify this correctly, it's not that we're going to miss tremendous doctrine. We'll pick it up in other ways. But I think we miss some of the impact of what is being communicated to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in this section. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I want you to first of all notice that there's a distinction made between the stars as the angels of the seven churches and the churches themselves. In the image you have seven lampstands. The uh, ascended Lord is walking in the midst of those lampstands as the priest judge who is pictured as one who is evaluating the seven churches. Distinct from the churches are something that he holds in his right hand. What he's holding in his right hand is completely separate, completely distinct from the seven individual lampstands. That's the first observation. What he is holding in his hand are seven stars. Now, these stars are defined as the angels of the seven churches. Now, what in the world are the angels of the seven churches? And this really introduces us to a fun thing for pastors and those who are students of the Word to try to deal with, and that is a a problem passage. I I think I enjoy dealing with something like this more than anything else because it's a bit of a challenge. It's like solving a mystery. You get to do some detective work, and you have to go where the evidence leads you. And it's very important in Bible study to go where the evidence leads you and make sure that you are accurately observing the evidence, just like Sherlock Holmes, to make sure that your conclusions are accurate. Now, when we come to this term angel, it can have a couple of different meanings. And so we ask the question, what does angel mean here? The Greek word is angelos which is spelled like it has a double G in the Greek, but whenever you have a double G, the Greeks pronounced it as if it was an NG, and that's where we get our word angel. And it means messenger. That's the root meaning, is messenger. What does angel mean? Well, your first option is that it refers to a human messenger. Now, we only have a couple of instances in all of the New Testament where Angelos refers to a human messenger. Uh, 
One of these is in Luke 9.59, where Jesus sends some messengers ahead to secure lodging for him and the disciples as they are on the way to Jerusalem. He sends them ahead to Samaria, and the Samaritans say, well, he's on his way to Jerusalem, he can't stay with us. And so the prejudice that the Samaritans had against the Jews rears its ugly head. But in the context of Luke 9.59, the messengers are not announcing anything, they're not teaching the Word, they're not the disciples, they are simply sent forward as envoys to secure lodging for the night. Another passage that is frequently cited to try to support the idea that the angelos of Revelation 1 and 2 and 3 is simply a messenger or human messenger is Matthew 11.10. Matthew 11.10, as well as parallel passages in Mark 1.2 and in Luke 7.27, are really quoting an Old Testament passage. The Old Testament passage is Malachi 3.1, which talks about the fact that there would be a messenger that would go before the Messiah, that would announce His coming, that would be the forerunner. And, of course, that's fulfilled in John the Baptist. Now, These passages are talking about a prophet. They're really quoting an Old Testament passage which uses the Hebrew word malaach, which is the same word that that is used a majority of times for an angel in the Old Testament, referring to the basic function of this supernatural class of beings that God created to carry out certain functions in the universe. But this is only one aspect of the use of this word angelos. Some want to take this meaning in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 to refer to a pastor teacher. Is this a pastor teacher? The reason people go to this is because when you think about it, just on the surface of what's going on here, it's like, what's an angel doing with the church? I mean, we don't see the angel. The angel isn't directly communicating to a local church. The angels weren't showing up. Uh, with this epistle from John on the Isle of Patmos, why would an angel be involved? And furthermore, it appears that these, these epistles are addressed to the angel. So why would they be addressed to a supernatural being? What, what does an angel have to do with the church? So there are those who attempt to say this isn't simply a human messenger, but this refers to a pastor teacher. Now the problem is that the concept of a human messenger is rarely attested in the New Testament. Angelos almost always refers to an angel, a supernatural being. Second, it never refers to a pastor per se. Now some may say, well, you could make that extension from Malachi 3.1 and its quotation in the New Testament because that referred to John the Baptist and he was proclaiming a message about Jesus. Well, it's true, but it refers to a prophet. And remember, a prophet was considered the mouthpiece of God. In the Old Testament, a priest represented God, or represented the people to God. But a prophet was the one through whom God spoke to the people. So it's different from a pastor teacher. A pastor teacher is not God's mouthpiece. A pastor teacher is teaching or communicating explaining what has already been revealed. He is not involved in the process of revelation like a prophet was in the Old Testament. 
Now, your third option is to identify this as an angel. To identify this as an angel. Now, the reason that many people have not taken this option is they can't explain why an angel would be involved in this process. And there have been many good and qualified Bible teachers and dispensationalists and prophecy scholars who have identified uh, the angel of the seven churches as a pastor teacher. And that's probably a view that most of you have heard. And so I'm going to challenge that tonight. And I'm going to challenge that for a number of reasons. I think we can go to a new level of understanding here that helps us see what is happening in the dynamics of these letters and how it affects our understanding of the role of the local church in the angelic conflict. And it's not that uh, the angel is communicating to these churches. It has a completely different function, but to do it, we have to take a step back and we have to look at the entire angelic conflict. And we have to look at this, this whole dynamic from the, the perspective of Scripture, from the fall of Satan and eternity past, all the way up to the present time. Now, before we get there, there's a couple of things we have to recognize, a couple of principles. First of all, whenever you do a word study, you have to recognize that a word's meaning must follow its normal usage, normal meaning, unless the context provides a strong reason for doing otherwise. I mean, you can even look up in a lexicon sometimes and see that, or even in a dictionary and say, well, this word has this rare usage. That kind of fits what I want it to mean, so I'm going to grab that and use it because that seems to make more sense right off the, the uh, top of my head. You can't do that. You have to really evaluate the passage. And even if the meaning that's there seems to be awkward, seems to be difficult to explain, you have to go with the view that the primary meaning or its major usage is your, your first, uh, first orientation. And just because we can't provide a complete answer for why an angel would be involved in this process wouldn't exclude this from being an option. Let me give you an example. We're all familiar, I think everybody here, with maybe a couple of exceptions, everybody here is familiar with the problem in the Old Testament that exists with a group of individuals known as the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we have this rather unusual, not bizarre situation where we're told that the sons of God came down and took the daughters of men as wives and they procreated and they had sort of a half-breed race as the production of their sexual union. Now, there are a lot of people who come to that and they just can't quite understand how an immaterial being such as an angel can have sexual relations with a human being. How an immaterial body can have a physical relationship with a material body. And so that's a problem for them. But the greater problem is that every time you have this term Beneha Elohim that's translated sons of God in Genesis 6-3, every single time you have that, that phrase used in the Old Testament, it refers to angelic beings. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, Job 37, it always refers to angels. It never refers to human beings. 
Therefore, you have to go where the evidence takes you. And the evidence says that the term sons of God refers to angels. I can't explain fully how the dynamics of that sexual union would take place. But I have to go with word meaning. That has to control our interpretation of the passage. Same thing is true when we come to this particular section. When we, we look at this and we say that they were, these letters were addressed to the angel of these churches, well, let's stop a minute and see if we can't figure out a reason why these angels would be, why angels would be addressed as opposed to a pastor teacher that might give us a greater understanding of the dynamics of these letters and maintain the integrity of the meaning of the word angelos in our interpretation of this passage. So the first thing that we should note is that in the book of Revelation, this word angelos is used 67 times. Now, the word angelos is only used 175 times in the whole New Testament. So think of that, 67 times is a little more than one-third of all the uses of angelos are in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, of those 67 uses, 59 of them, that's the seven that are used in Revelation 2 and 3, the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Sardis, the angel of the church of Pergamum, Thyatira, Smyrna, Laodicea, Philadelphia, those seven usage plus the one in Revelation 120. So that's eight uses. Those are up for grabs, let's say. That's what we're trying to figure out. What, is, what does that mean? Well, if every other use of the word angelos in Revelation refers to a supernatural being, then you've already weighted the evidence in that direction. You really have to come up with sound evidence. You can't just say, well, I'm not sure how that would relate, so I'm going to make it a human messenger. You've got to come up with some strong contextual argumentation in order to uh, demonstrate that it's not an angel. If it's used 59 times to refer, refer to angels. So word usage pushes us in the direction of a supernatural being. You just can't get away from that. Angelos never, never, not one place in secular literature in the New Testament refers to a pastor. So we have to go where the evidence leads us. Okay, first point, first line of argumentation. First line of argumentation. What do we see in verse 20 here? The mystery of the seven stars which you saw. Now, what's a mystery? A mystery is previously unrevealed truth. Something that is previously unrevealed. The mystery of the seven stars. Well, you don't know what they are up to this point. So what are they? The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So what we have here is an identification of the angels with the stars. Now, what you run into, it's really really uh, typical of a lot of uh, liberal interpretation, is you try to figure out uh, how they got this imagery from some sort of secular source. I don't know if any of you watched the special they had on Saturday night on the uh, Fox News channel on the birth of Jesus. But they had, they trotted out a number of, uh, uh, and, and most people don't know who these, these scholars are that they get on these shows, but they did have one conservative who's a graduate of Dallas Seminary, Erwin Lutzer, who's a pastor of Moody Memorial Church in, 
in Chicago did a great job for his part, but they also trotted out these fairly liberal scholars who begin, I mean, their, their whole starting point is that the Bible isn't reliable. It's not necessarily historically true. It was written by people who were just trying to invent meaning for Jesus and to shore up this idea that he's really God. So they, 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 I mean, the claim of the liberals is that the early Christians went to secular imagery in order to provide uh, some sort of uh, substance to Jesus' birth. So since there was a, uh, I think one of the examples that they used was a comet that appeared at the time that uh, Augustus was inaugurated. And he said, well, that was the spirit of Julius Caesar. And so the Christians came along, and when they were inventing this myth around the birth of Jesus, they came up with the idea of a star, and they were just borrowing that from secular history. You never see them come from the position that secular history is borrowing from Christianity and borrowing from the Bible, which is much more likely. And one of the things that, it, that also happens here is that that the Bible often, with a little tongue-in-cheek uh, humor, is poking uh, at secular imagery and mythology. For example, at the time that John wrote this, uh, Domitian was the emperor, and uh, the emperor Domitian uh, pictured himself with seven stars on a gold coin that was minted about 83, about AD 83, about uh, eight to ten years before Revelation was written. And Domitian pictured himself as sitting on the globe of heaven playing with these seven Stars, And it's a picture of him as the Caesar being in control. He's the sovereign in control of the, of the universe. This symbolism of seven stars or seven planets originated uh, in Crete in the ancient world, with the, uh, where, which is where the mythical god Zeus was born. And on ancient Cretan coins, Zeus is pictured on a heavenly globe with these seven stars in his hand. See, what the Scripture does is God's poking fun at this. It's not Zeus that controls. It's not Domitian that controls. It is Jesus Christ who has the seven stars. So there's there's always a little bit of of a subtext, a polemic going on here to show that it's Jesus Christ who's in control. But the text itself tells us how to interpret the symbolism, that the seven stars are the seven angels. Now, we have a problem. If we want to take these stars as referring to pastors, then we have to come up with some sort of biblical corroboration for taking stars as pastors. But if you go through the Bible, stars are used in specific ways. First of all, the stars generally, and in most usage, refers to literal light-bearing bodies that God created and scattered throughout the universe. We see them first mentioned in Genesis 1.16. You can also look at passages such as Genesis 15.5 and Genesis 22.17. A literal meaning of stars. A second way that builds off of that literal meaning is that the stars were used to symbolize the innumerable descendants of Abraham. So here often you would say, you would see God say to Abraham that the, the descendants, 
your descendants will be as many as the stars in the heavens. Passages such as Genesis 22:17, Genesis 26:4, Exodus 32:13. So you have a, this literal use. A third way that you have stars used is to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. And Genesis chapter 37 verse 9, Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, his uh, brothers are pictured as stars and they bow down before him. That's the backdrop to the imagery in Revelation chapter 12 verse 1. So stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel in two passages. In three Old Testament passages, though, stars represent angels. In Job 38, 7, the sons of God are are used metaphorically or described metaphorically as stars. Isaiah 14, 13, the angelic host is again referred to as the stars of heaven, as as it is in Daniel 8, verse 10, and possibly a fourth passage, uh, Judges 5, 20. In the New Testament, there are four passages that refer to angels as stars, and they're all in Revelation. Revelation 1.16 and 1.20 clearly identify stars as angels. Also in Revelation 2.1 and Revelation 12, verse 4, when Satan falls from heaven, his tail, the tail of the dragon, sweeps away the one-third of the stars of heaven. So you see this imagery again and again in Old Testament and New Testament that identify stars with angels. And in Revelation 1.20, Revelation 2.1 and following, you have this identification of angels with stars. So you really are forced now to twist the Scripture to try to make stars represent human messengers Stars never represent human leaders anywhere in the Scripture, but they do commonly refer to angels. So now we see that there's a strong basis for sticking with an angelic interpretation of this particular word. Now there's another line of evidence that we need to focus on, and that is how angels are represented in the book of Revelation. How do angels appear in the book of Revelation? I just noted that there are 67 uses of the word angelos. Now, there are other uh, circumlocutions describing angels in Revelation, but there's 50 or 67 uses of the word. So that means that, that, that there's a heavy emphasis on angels in the book of Revelation. Let's just do a survey. I hope you have your Bible out and ready. Flip over a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 4. We'll just hit a few high points. Revelation chapter 4, this deals with future times, and this is when John has uh, been called up into heaven, which is a picture of the rapture. And there he is, sees the throne of God. And before the throne of God, there are 24 thrones, 24 elders. And there are also these four living creatures mentioned in verse 8. And these four living creatures have six wings. And these are a class of angels that are before the throne of God. And they are praising God day and night, saying that He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Verse 11. Then when we go into verse 5, we see that there is a problem in heaven. 
And the problem relates to this scroll that's mentioned in verse 1. And this scroll is ultimately a title deed to the earth. See, God, in, in a sense, the title to the earth was lost when Adam sinned. Adam was the king of the earth, created to be the ruler of the earth. But when he uh, disobeyed God and he followed Satan's temptation in the garden, he lost dominion and Satan became the prince and power of the air and the god of this age. And he is the one who is the uh, ruler during this time. And God ultimately is going to resolve that. And that comes at the end of history during this period known as the Great Tribulation. And so we have this scroll, and this scroll represents a title to the earth. And the problem is there's no one found worthy to open the seals on this scroll. It's got seven seals, and each of these seals we know will represent a judgment. And so the cry of an angel in verse 2 is, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Remember, each of these seals represents a judgment. So what we see here is one of the major functions of angels in the book of Revelation. They are operating, as it were, as officers of the court, the heavenly court, the supreme court of heaven, and as witnesses for the court of the execution of divine judgment and the execution of God's judicial sentences in human history. Now, this is important because the entire book of Revelation deals with this whole theme of judgment, that eventually every one of us is going to be held accountable. We're going to be standing before God in one of three basic judgments. We will either stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. The issue there is not whether or not you are, your destiny is heaven. The issue there is how well you did as a believer in terms of your advance. To guarantee that you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The gospel is very simple. How do you get to heaven? You trust in Christ as your Savior. You believe that He died on the cross for your sins. It's not about good works. It's not about morality. It's not about ritual. It's not about what church you belong to. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put your faith alone in Christ alone, then you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you'll be evaluated not on the basis of sin. That's not the issue. The issue is how obedient you were and how mature you became. And then there are rewards that are given out. Judgment seat of Christ. Second judgment that's mentioned is the sheep and the goat judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation, which is a separation of believers and unbelievers in the tribulation period. The third judgment is for unbelievers only. This occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. It's the great white throne judgment. And the issue there is whether or not you trusted Christ as your Savior. Once again, the issue there is not sin. Sin was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. Actually, totally. See, you have to have a couple of different things to be saved. You not only have to have the sin penalty paid for, but you also have to have a human spirit, and you have to have perfect righteousness. Now, sin was paid for at the cross, so you don't do anything about that. Jesus Christ took care of it. But that doesn't mean an unbeliever is saved. That doesn't mean people are automatically saved. They have to trust Christ for salvation. 
they have to accept the free gift of salvation. It's not based on works. It's based on a free gift. And the instant you do that, then God regenerates and you receive a human spirit. And secondly, what happens is that you are you receive imputation of righteousness and you're declared justified. Now you're saved. You have to have those three things in order to be saved. So what's going to happen at the great white throne is you have millions and millions of people who've had their sins paid for, but they don't have a human spirit. They're still spiritually dead, and they don't have perfect righteousness. And the result is that they will be condemned to eternity in the lake of fire because they have failed to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins, John 3:18. So this whole backdrop in chapter 5 is this, this judgment and there is an angel who is calling forth for someone who is worthy to loose the seals. That is, someone who is worthy to execute the judgment that this scroll calls for. And no one is found who is able to open the scroll. And John begins to cry like a baby in verse 4 because no one, can, no one is found who is, uh, who is worthy. And then the Lamb comes forward. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins, He is worthy to open the scroll. So once again, the role of angels here is has to do with the execution of judgment. And when the Lord comes forward in verse 8 as the Lamb, the response is that they sing a new song. Praising God in verse 9 and in verse 12, you have these myriads upon myriads of angels singing praise to God because He is the, singing praise to the Lamb because He is worthy to execute judgment. So again, the role of angels here has to do with judgment. Skip over to chapter 7 for the next mention of angels. What happens in chapter 6 is the beginning of the judgments. You have a summary of the six sealed judgments. And then there's an interlude in verse 7 when we're told uh, about the sealing of 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. In verse 1, John writes, after these things, that is after the period of seeing the six sealed judgments, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So it's like watching a movie. It's not consecutive action. You're over in one area watching these six seal judgments unfold, and then you remove from that and you're going to look at another area at events that happen at the same time or contemporaneous to these six seal judgments. And contemporaneous to the six seal judgments, you have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, what are they doing? They're holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, just last night I watched this silly movie called The Day After Tomorrow. I don't know if any of you saw it, but it's a great piece of liberal propaganda on global warming and environmentalism and everything else. But what struck me as I watched it, as you have this global meteorological disaster take place, is that this was probably very similar to what took place during the time of the Noahic Flood. And it's also very similar to what's going to happen during the tribulation period. Imagine the meteorological consequences of no wind. That shuts down the whole evaporation water cycle. Uh, Evaporation, condensation, uh, precipitation... 
And so the angels are holding back the four winds. This, they're functioning as those who are executing God's judgment on the earth. Verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm them yet, basically in verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So the, the first group of angels is executing judgment. The second group is protecting God's people. Then we go to verse 11. And again, we see the angel standing around the throne, worshiping God and praising Him for what? For finally carrying out judgment against sin and evil in human history. Now we skip down to chapter 8. This is the seventh seal. And we're told that when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. In other words, what happens when that seventh seal is opened is the horrors of it are so incredible that every, all of the angels are in stunned silence. Now, this is one of the reasons I love doing a survey like this of a book, because you, you, you pick up the, the images that are going on here. Up to this point, what have you been hearing in heaven? Noise. Millions and millions of angels are singing praises to God continuously from chapter 4 through chapter 7. Suddenly in chapter 8, they open the seventh seal, and all of the angels are now in stunned silence at the horrors that are going to be poured out on the human race during this last period of the tribulation. In verse 1 we read, When he opened the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Now these seven angels are given seven trumpets, so they are again executing judgment on the human race. Then another angel, distinct from the seven, another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar, he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. Now, here's this picture of this, this censer. It's a golden bowl that has like coals in it and it's burning and the smoke going up. The incense is a picture of, of intercessory prayer. And the angel in verse 5 takes this censer, fills it with fire from the altar, and then he throws it on the earth. What are the prayers? The prayers, we're told, are the prayers of the saints that God would finally execute judgment against unrighteousness in human history. It's the cry of the psalmist in the Old Testament. How long, O Lord, will the righteous suffer and the unrighteous be prosperous? And finally, God is going to execute judgment. So the angel here is pictured as what? Carrying out the judgment of God on unrighteousness in human history. Then we look at down to verse 6. And starting in verse 6 and verse 7, each of these seven angels begin to blow on their trumpet, and each one announces another judgment. Then when we get down to verse 13, we have the last three judgments in this series. And John says, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So again, the angels are involved in announcing God's judgment on uh, the human race during the tribulation. Now remember, there are going to be millions, if not billions of people, saved during the tribulation period. You have all this incredible judgment, but there's also the grace of God. God is a God 
who is always going to proceed grace with judgment. And even in the midst of judgment, there's the offer of salvation. When we come to chapter 9, chapter 9, the fifth trumpet is blown, and a star and an angel falls from heaven to the earth to open the abyss. This is in verse 1. Fifth angel sounded, I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Once again, the connection of star to angel. In verses 13 through 15, the sixteenth, sixth angel blows the trumpet to release four angels bound at the Euphrates, and they kill a third of mankind. Once again, they're tied to judgment. Then we come to chapter 10. Beginning in chapter 10, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun. His feet like the pillars of fire. He, he, all of this imagery pictures the throne of God. And he has a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. And he goes on to describe the judgment that comes as a result of that. So this angel is responsible for executing another series of judgments. In verse, uh, in chapter 11, uh, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, He shall reign forever and ever. It's the final series of judgments known as the bold judgments at the end of the book of tribulation, uh, end of the book of Revelation, just preceding the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 12, we shift the whole scene again. And we look in the heavens and there's war between Michael and his angel and the dragon who's Satan and his angels. And in verse 9, the devil and his angels are cast out of heaven. And we see in verse 9 that, um, and in this section, that a third of the angels uh, fall from heaven. Chapter 14, let's just skip on for the sake of time. Chapter 14, another 14 verse 6, another angel flies through heaven proclaiming the gospel. Uh, 14.8, another angel announces the doom of Babylon, which is the final kingdom of man during the tribulation. 14 verse 9, the third angel warns about the mark of the beast. All of this relates to uh, judgment and warnings about the judgment. In 14.15, another angel comes out of the temple of God in heaven and cries out to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. It's a call for the Lord Jesus Christ to finally execute judgment on the planet. Verse 18, another angel comes out from the altar with power over fire and cries again to the Lord to thrust in his sickle and execute judgment. And then the uh, verse 19, so this angel who has the sickle finally thrusts in his sickle and executes judgment. Then we come to uh, chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 7, we're introduced to these uh, seven bowls, which are full of the wrath of God. And they again are poured out by angels in chapter 16. Seven angels pour out the seven bowl judgments. Chapter 17, one of the angels comes to, in verse 1, one of the angels comes to John to take him to witness the destruction of the woman and the beast. That's the end times kingdom. So John is going to witness this final judgment. Chapter 18, verse 1, another angel with great authority announces the fall 
of Babylon. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cries out in verse 2 with a mighty voice, Babylon the great is fallen. So he announces the final execution of God's judgment. Then in chapter 19, verse 17, there is another angel who announces the gathering of the armies of man against the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment at Armageddon. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. And this is a grisly picture of all the dead there will be and the birds coming to eat the carrion of the dead bodies following the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 20, verse 1, there's an angel that's given a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand to bind the false prophet, the Antichrist, and Satan. All of this is simply to point out that if you go through Revelation chapter by chapter and study what these angels are doing, they're all involved in one way or another with the announcement of judgment or the execution of judgment. So if you look at the first three chapters of Revelation and you see this identification of stars with angels, which is consistent throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, and you come to an understanding that this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the seven churches, that he's pictured as a priest judge, then it fits the scenario that what we have here is angels of the churches who are involved in some way judging or evaluating those churches. Now that leads us to back up again and think about the angelic conflict. This is not an unusual scenario. Angels are involved in judgment all throughout the Old Testament. When we think about angels, we recognize that God created angels in eternity past. They were the first of God's creatures. He created angels before He created man. He created angels before He created the universe. Job 38.7 says that these uh, sons of God, all the sons of God, indicating no split, no revolt yet, all the sons of God sang for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. So God is eternal. He created the angels first, and then He created the earth. Somewhere in there, Lucifer fell victim to his own arrogance and decided he wanted to be like God. This is clearly given and described in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 11 to 15. The picture in Ezekiel 28, 11 to 15 can't be the Garden of Eden. It talks about the fact that, that this personage in Ezekiel 28 was in the Garden of God, in Eden, the Garden of God. But he's on a mountain. And this is a totally different topography than that which you have in Genesis chapter 2. This is a garden, not a, a garden of vegetables, as you have in Genesis 2, but this is a garden of minerals because there's so many rocks and minerals that are mentioned in the surrounding of, Je- of Ezekiel chapter 28. And in these two passages, we're told that this creature decides he wants to be like God. He wants to elevate himself over all the stars of heaven, all the angels, and he wants to be like God. 
And we infer from Matthew 25:41, which states that the lake of fire has already been created for these angels, that God must have determined the penalty for these angels, but postponed its execution for some reason. The lake of fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels. It's all ready for them. So why aren't they there? Well, that's a good question. Why has it been postponed? The answer we pull together from a number of different passages and a number of different ideas. What is going on in the fall of Satan? Well, first of all, Satan challenges God's authority. That's the first thing. Satan challenges God's authority. And in this, Satan wishes to demonstrate that God is basically a tyrant. He won't let his creatures do what they want to do. He won't let them fulfill their potential. He won't let them be God. Satan wants to be God. He wants to run the creation. He says, I have a better idea, God. Let me do it my way. I can do it better than you can. You just won't give me a chance. So he challenges divine authority. Now, as a result of this, as Satan is rebelling against God's authority, what God is going to demonstrate in human history is that just the opposite of that kind of arrogant rebellion is what is necessary on the part of the creature to have any level of success. And this is ultimately seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, in the famous Kenosis passage, tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself or was obedient to God by humbling himself to the point of death. See, it is this kind of genuine humility, placing himself completely under the authority of God, that is the 180-degree opposite of what Satan demonstrated. So Satan challenges God's authority. He wants to be his own authority. The second thing is that Satan challenges God's love. Can express it this way: How can a loving God send His creatures to an eternity in the lake of fire? Now, don't run past this question too rapidly. See what Satan is asking here is: Think about the punishment for a minute. God, you're, th- this is incredibly cruel. You're going to send creatures to spend eternity burning in torment in a lake of fire. The judgment doesn't fit the crime. I just wanted to run things on my own. But you're going to put me in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever? That's not very loving. Well, the issue at stake here is what you mean by love and where you're putting the focus. See, Satan's putting the focus on himself. But God is putting his focus on all of the victims of the creature's rebellion. Because, you see, when we look at the Garden of Eden, and how things started for the human race, the test was whether or not they would obey God by not eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if I were to ask you to list the five worst sins that you could think of, you probably wouldn't put eating a piece of fruit on that list. It's an innocuous act. Doesn't, it's a victimless crime. Isn't that a great term we have today? I mean, they didn't do anything to anybody. They simply ate something. But the act of eating was in disobedience to the Creator. And that simple act of disobedience had consequences that reverberated throughout all of the universe. It affected the spiritual dimension 
of the universe. It affected the physiology of the universe. It changed physical laws at that point. The second law of thermodynamics went into effect and everything began to run down. It changed the uh, biology of the human race. It changed the function of the womb and the woman. It changed the serpent so that instead of walking upright, it's now crawling on its belly. It changed the uh, it changed botany so that now the ground is producing thorns and thistles, and it is now difficult to produce vegetation and to raise crops as opposed to a harmonious relationship. This simple act of disobedience just ripped through the entire universe. Because of that simple act of eating fruit, you now have war, famine, disease, suffering, perversion, violence, hatred, all of the horrible things that we can think of in history are all the consequence of what? That simple act of creaturely rebellion. See, these are the unintended consequences that the woman didn't think of when she ate the fruit, the man didn't think of when he ate the fruit. What God is demonstrating to what God is demonstrating to Lucifer is that simple act of rebellion on his part wasn't so inconsequential. It wasn't just a simple act of a creature wanting to do it his way. That God, that, that reality is structured in such a way that the only way that a creature can have meaning and value and significance, that there can be harmony in the universe is through 100% obedience to God. When that is disrupted, it rips everything apart and it destroys everything. And so God is demonstrating through human history all of the vast options and permutations of disobedience that can possibly take place showing how nothing can work. The creature can never find any meaning or any value apart from 100% obedience to him. So Satan challenges God's love. And third, he challenges God's justice. And so God must demonstrate that he is just. And what does this bring into the picture? This brings in a concept for us of a courtroom. Now, this is the framework for understanding Revelation. This, whenever you talk about judgment, what are you talking about? A judge and justice. They're embedded in the concept. And so God is demonstrating that he is just. And this is why when it comes to salvation, you have all of these judicial terms such as imputation and justification and propitiation, uh, even forgiveness. These are terms that have their, their history embedded in courtroom terminology. So when we come to Revelation 2 and 3 and we want to understand the function of angels here, we have to plug this into the angelic conflict. We will do that next time. We'll complete our survey of the angelic conflict and begin to see how the role of angels fits into this so that when we come to these seven letters to the seven churches, what we will see is they're not epistles like the other epistles in the New Testament. These are evaluation statements. And the angels are functioning as overseers of God's judgment, as officers of the court. What these angels are doing is they are part of the angelic witness to the execution of God's justice in history. And it's not that these letters are being written to the angels to then give them to the church, but there's two copies. Just like in the Old Testament, two copies of the law were made. 
One went into the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's copy, just like when you buy a piece of property, one copy goes down to the courthouse downtown, one copy goes in your files. This is one copy goes to the angel. This angel is responsible for overseeing the execution of God's judgment in the church age towards congregations. The other copy goes to the congregation. It's not one copy going to the angel and then he gives it to the church. It's one copy goes to the angel and he is going to be a witness to how that that message is, is applied to that individual congregation. And then the congregation gets its own copy to see where they stand before God. And we'll develop that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to to look at your word and realize that we are all going to be held accountable for our own spiritual life. And indeed, this congregation will be held accountable before you for what we do with what we're taught, for what we do with the your gracious provision to us in the Word of God. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that is unsure of their salvation, unsure of their eternal destiny, just unsure how they will fit into this whole scenario of judgment, we want to give them the opportunity right now to make sure of their eternal destiny. Right now, right where you said, all you need to do is trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The instant you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, God knows what you're trusting in for salvation. And at that instant, you're saved. You never have to worry about your eternal destiny again. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you can have eternal life. If you believe this right now, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening, that as we reflect upon them and the Holy Spirit utilizes them in our own soul, that we might respond to this challenge because we know that that these letters are talking about us and that we need to be prepared one day to give an answer to you for what we have done with all of your gracious provision for us in our own spiritual life. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.